0: All right. Well, I forgot my regular glasses, so all I have are the readers that I feel like instantly make me 12 years older when I wear them. So just know there's a lot of wisdom coming uh, from the pulpit tonight with these glasses on. Uh, It's good to be back up here. Um, It's been almost a month, and I am sorry that I have been out as much as I have. Uh, It turns out I am not as strong as Kidney Stones. Uh, But I'm happy uh, to be here, even though it feels like it's been a year. And I should have probably just gone ahead and... Jump back into where we're at in the lectionary everywhere, but I we only got halfway through the Joseph story, and I really wanted to finish it. So we're just we're just off the reservation when it comes to uh, the lectionary. We'll get back on at some point. But um, I wanted to tell I to talk about the story of Joseph and, and his uh, reuniting uh, with his brothers, and the the story today is a um, is is basically a perfect setup for the kind of uh, revenge narrative that we love to pay a few dollars to go and see in the movie theater, right? It's, it's a great setup for it. I don't know if you've ever had that kind of situation. I, I, so when I was growing up, I grew up on the same block with the same group of kids from the time I was three years old all the way up till high school, right? So same group of kids, and I had, they didn't have the word frenemy at that time, that came along later, uh, but I had a frenemy on my block, which was the kid straight across the street from me, his name was Daryl. He was a year older than me. Daryl was the biggest kid on the block, and he was also the kid with the shortest fuse, right? And so uh, at different points in my life, I would be friends with Daryl for a season, and then something would happen, and Daryl would lose it, and he would try to beat me up, or he would, he bit me one time so hard through the side of my jeans that it broke the skin. He, uh, he just had a very short fuse, and you never quite knew what was going to set him off, Right? So as I got older, I learned to basically keep my distance from Daryl as much as possible. He was a lot bigger than me. He just kind of scared me a little bit, and you never knew what was going to happen to set him off where he would want to wrestle you or fight you or do something that just scared scrawny Mike Dixon a lot. Uh, Daryl is the only human being I've ever punched in my entire life. Uh, One day we were walking down the street with my other friend, uh, who lived next door to him, and Daryl had borrowed a video game from my friend, we went to go ask for the game because we wanted to play it and Daryl was upset about something. We didn't know he was upset, but he was walking down the street. I should have known by the intent with which he was walking. My friend tapped him on the shoulder to ask if he could get his game back and he turned around and just punched my friend. And uh, all of the karate kid and everything I'd ever seen came into focus and I knew this was my moment. And so I threw a haymaker to teach Daryl a lesson and I hit him, I mean, right here, right on the corner where the eye meets the nose, as, as hard as I possibly could. Um, waiting for him just to just fall into a crumbled pile and cry for his mother. And instead, what he did was do this, and then look at me and said, you're dead, Dixon, and started coming after me. So um, I learned then I'm not a fighter. Uh, I'm not made to fight um, because the one time I tried to stand up, he, did not, he didn't even know I had hit him, hardly. Uh, but that's how I grew up with Daryl across the street. Bigger than me, stronger than me, scarier than me. I just grew up kind of afraid of him. Now, fast forward to when I'm in college, at uh, Palm Beach Atlantic College, home of the fighting sailfish. You all know it uh, and love it, I'm sure. Uh, you saw us on ESPN uh, yesterday. Um, and I, I had this old, terrible old house right next to campus where me and some friends lived, and we were having this kind of big party. It, I mean, it, it was kind of like William Carey. It was like however much of a party that is. But, you know, that's what we were having. Probably 50 people in our house and everyone hanging out. And I, And this is I don't know, probably seven years after I moved away from that neighborhood I grew up in. I haven't seen anyone from that neighborhood in seven years. And I walk in the kitchen, and in my kitchen in West Palm Beach, an hour away from where I grew up, is standing Daryl. Daryl is standing in my kitchen. I haven't seen him in all those years. And I recognize Daryl immediately because Daryl was the exact same size I saw him last when I was in like eighth grade. Apparently he grew all of his growth in like fifth grade right? He was like this tall to me. And probably and, and weighed less than I did. And I looked at him and I said, Daryl? And he said, Mike? He had a little bit of five o'clock shadow so I guess he had added, added some facial hair but that's it. Otherwise, he was the exact same size. I towered over him and the first thought I had was, I bet you I could punch you and you wouldn't stand <laughs> up now, right? Because I had been slightly afraid of this guy my entire life and here he was. He was so small compared to me and I wasn't a big guy but he's, he's just not a big guy. He just happened to bigger earlier than the rest of us, right? And so I just beat the... No, I'm just kidding. I didn't, I, I didn't do that. Um, we a, he, he was very sweet and quiet, and we actually had a very pleasant conversation and found out in that kitchen that one of my roommates in college, uh, that roommate's mother, had married Daryl's dad a couple years ago, unbeknownst to all of us, and that's how he ended up in, my, in the house that I lived in. We didn't even know the connection, right? But it was a perfect setup for me to just have this reckoning with Daryl who I felt like had tortured me for years, right? Because I could have taken him. Not much of a fighter, but I'm positive I could have taken him, right? And in this story we have with Joseph here, it is the perfect setup for a revenge narrative. Now, you remember last time we saw Joseph, Joseph was sent by his father to go check on his older brothers who were out in the fields uh, far away from the house taking care of everything. And, And Joseph is the chosen one. He's got this special coat, that his father has given him that basically is not for work, it's just because your daddy's favorite boy. And he's supposed to go to his older brothers and report back to the dad whether they're doing a good job or a bad job. And he tells his brothers about these dreams where one day he's going to be more important than them because he's a naive 17-year-old and doesn't know that that's a bad move. And his older brothers see him coming. And you remember last time I got to speak, nine months ago, whatever it was, The line they said is, look, here comes the dreamer, right? Let us kill him and see what becomes of his dreams. And so his brothers set about first to kill him, and then they change their mind. And they do it all very casually. They throw him in a pit, they take his coat, they eat lunch like it's no big deal. Then they see some people passing by and realize they can sell him for 20 pieces of silver. So instead of killing him, they sell him into slavery. And in the intervening chapters, what we see for Joseph is as a 17-year-old, he's now separated from his father his love, he loves, from his family, from his brothers. Everyone thinks he's dead. He's sold into slavery. Uh, he eventually ends up part of uh, Potiphar's house, uh, who's an important person in the empire. And Potiphar sees value in him and, and sees that everything he does is successful, so he begins to promote him. And I'm pretty sure he's in charge of all of Potiphar's house. So, hey, things are looking pretty good for Joseph. Well, then Potiphar's wife also sees something in Joseph she likes and tries to seduce him. He says no and runs away. So Potiphar's wife accuses him of attacking her, and he gets thrown into prison. So then he's suffering away in prison, Uh, and even the prison guards recognize that there's something special about him, so they kind of put him in charge of the other prisoners, but he's still in prison. In prison, he starts interpreting dreams on behalf of other people who used to work uh, for Pharaoh, right? And uh, eventually, uh, they learn some things from him, and they see the value in him, and they say, when we get out of here, we're going to remember you, and help get you out of prison. And uh, that does happen. It just happens a lot longer than they say it would. You, know, you think they, they get out, they're, they're back in good graces with Pharaoh, but they forget about him for a while until Pharaoh starts having dreams that need to be interpreted. Then Joseph is called up to interpret those dreams. And one thing leads to another leads to another. And suddenly Pharaoh puts Joseph, eventually this slave, in charge of the entire, uh, all of Egypt. And what they know is that there's years and years coming where they won't be able to farm and they won't be able to grow anything, so they need to put things away. And and, uh, Joseph is put in charge of, uh, he's massively important in this suffering area, this place where there's no food, no drink. People need help. And Joseph is in charge of all of it. This famine hits the land. And Joseph, who's this powerful man in charge of a desperate region, uh, the famine is so bad that it seems to threaten God's promise to Jacob and his family, the brothers who are still living back home. So Jacob sends his sons, Joseph's brothers, to seek food and salvation and rescue from Pharaoh. None of them have the slightest idea that they're coming to beg for help from the one that they sold into slavery so many years ago. They're getting ready to encounter the person who now has the power to end their lives, who they treated so cruelly. It is a perfect setup. Here's Joseph after years of loss, struggle, prison, slavery, separation from his family. And what will he do? We're going to pick up in Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15 tonight. We're skipping over some of the story because it's just very lengthy. Uh, Joseph honestly plays with his brother a little bit before telling them. It's kind of the cat with a mouse kind of thing. He's trying to decide how he's going to act, I think. But then it says this. Genesis 45, 1 through 15. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him. When Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into into Egypt. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. (coughs) God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you and many survivors. So it's not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father and a pharaoh and a lord lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there. Since there are five more years of famine to come, so you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my own mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father how greatly I am honored in Egypt, and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and he wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. I think there are a few stories in Scripture that better illustrate forgiveness and reconciliation than this one. Just as we saw a few weeks ago, uh, when Jacob and Esau found their way back to each other, so here we see with Joseph and his brothers. But honestly, this is even a more stark story to me. As awful as it is to steal a birthright and those things that we saw with Jacob and Esau, this is a breathtaking amount of trauma for Joseph to have been subjected to by his own family. Again, if this was a movie, this whole thing would have built up for this moment where Joseph then whispers into the oldest brother's ear who he really is. You see the realization come across his face, and then Joseph takes his revenge, right? Instead, he's hugging his neck and weeping upon it. It's a beautiful scene, but I'm not sure that we take it serious enough if we don't let it disturb us just a little bit. Forgiveness like this carries with it some staggering implications. And I think we do our best to avoid these implications when we can. We do that a lot of different ways. We avoid it by not thinking about Joseph as like a real person in real pain, right? It's kind of a character and a story, so we create some distance that way. Or we avoid it with theology. Uh, We use especially some of the things that Joseph says here, lend itself towards it. We say, well, God was in control. God was making all this happen. So, you know, it's not... Joseph really had no choice, and his brothers really had no choice. You know that I, that's not how I view things. Uh, we've talked about that in the past. I think that Joseph's brothers had a choice, and they chose. I don't think they had to do evil. And I don't think Joseph had to do kindness. But we avoid it with theology sometimes. Sometimes we avoid having to take it and really think about it ourselves by convincing ourselves that whatever unforgiveness we have is more warranted even than what we read about in Scripture although it's hard to beat uh, selling someone into slavery for all the time. I don't think we should sidestep the story that is being put forward here. Plainly spoken, Joseph's brothers did something unspeakably evil and it had devastating consequences for everyone around them. Joseph obviously bore the brunt of their evil. He was unquestionably a victim But the father thought he lost a son, the family was broken from that point on, and on and on the ripples go. And yet, despite all of this, Joseph still made the gut-wrenching decision to try to forgive and reconcile with those who did not deserve it in the least. There's no remorse shown by the brothers, there's no forgiveness asked for by the brothers. It is all Joseph's initiative. This is a terrible, and beautiful thing at once. And it gets to the very heart of what we mean by faith. Because what we say, and we remind ourselves particularly each Easter, is that we are resurrection people. We believe, we claim that evil, that death, that none of those things get the last word. We claim that there's resurrection on the other side of murder. In fact, without this essential belief, I'm not really sure what we have to offer in a world that is full of other stories. This is the good news. So let's take a moment, let's do ourselves a service by approaching this idea with the weight that it warrants. Let's not let forgiveness be a word that we use casually. Because if we do, I don't think we're really ready to contend with it when the time comes in our own lives. Because the truth is, forgiveness can be absolutely brutal. Because forgiveness is not pretending like real pain wasn't caused. And forgiveness is not a means of avoiding the very real conflict in our lives. And forgiveness is not even letting someone off the hook without consequences for the choices they made to hurt others. I don't think forgiveness is any of those things. In fact, I feel like it's quite the opposite, really. I think forgiveness and reconciliation... Is the way you can take most seriously the pain that other people have caused us. I think you take it with the utmost seriousness. It calls it what it is, and it fights against it. It refuses to let it have the last word, and it struggles through it to the other side. It's not weak, it's not soft, and it's not a cop out, it's a cross. Forgiveness and reconciliation do not allow the offender to pretend like they're right or that nothing really bad happened or to just move on with their lives. It's bold and it's confrontational. Forgiveness says, I am your brother and you sold me. You abandoned me. You did that to me. But forgiveness also says, I refuse to let your choice get the last word in our lives. Again, this is not letting someone off the hook. That's often the critique of forgiveness, right? Well, if we just forgive and forget, then, you know, how will anyone ever learn the lesson? Which I don't even know why forget's always included with forgive. I don't even know why that's in there. But somehow forgiveness feels unjust. And I just don't think that's biblical forgiveness. In fact, you just heard in Romans 12, earlier you heard it said that Being kind to those who are unkind to you is like putting hot coals on someone's head. The Bible also tells us that it's kindness that leads people to true repentance. And I know this to be true. I'm not sure if you've been there, but I have. Have you ever really been forgiven? I mean, has someone look you in the eye, not soft-pedal how much you've hurt them, and still decide to forgive you? I've had that happen. And I don't know that I've ever felt more deeply confronted, shamed, and penitent in my life than when I was shown true grace by someone. It did not help me dodge what I did. It made me meet it head on. Forgiveness is white-knuckled work against our own sin and death. In many ways, it's a whole lot easier just to not talk again and to go your separate ways. In most ways, it's easier. But when I experienced forgiveness of others, it was not a cop-out for me. It dealt honestly and directly with what I did wrong, and it chose love as a response. And that might be the most powerful thing in the world. It's terrifying, it's hard to swallow, but it's also the best news imaginable. And it's what we base our entire faith upon. I don't think that's an overstatement. I think forgiveness might be the most powerful thing on the world. And I do think it's the very essence of the Christian message. Again, we are resurrection people. We are forgiveness people. Each week when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we remind ourselves of God's forgiveness for us and our forgiveness for each other. What do we really believe if we don't believe it? I think we as a community uh, have definitely experienced uh, up close and personal how difficult uh, and messy this can be. Uh, I, was re- I was thinking this week and remembering that there's, there's a whole lot of people that are part of this community that never knew our friend Tony Robinson. Uh, for those of you who didn't know him, Tony was a big part of our community for a long time. He spent about 20 years as a, a man without a home and a man who struggled uh, seemingly losing uh, the struggle to his addictions for like 20 years. And one day showed up at church uh, when we were downtown and never stopped coming. And what we saw through Tony was God's grace at work. We saw someone who had spent 20 years on the street, 20 years doing things that he uh, felt ashamed about. And we saw God's grace act out in his life. We saw him uh, get past his addictions. We saw him begin to serve in the community. And we saw his life very much changed by the love of people in this church Edward Street Fellowship Center where he uh, was at and another kind of satellite of people who uh, began to really include him in their lives. And Tony was just kind of this living parable to a lot of us, right? He was the the prodigal son come to life. He uh, finally at one point began living at Hope House, the day shelter that we were a part of for a long time, and spent his days making sure that other people who were living on the streets had clothes and food and were taken care of. He was just a good man. And as as most of you know, some of you may not know, but probably the hardest thing that's happened in the life of this community uh, was the day when Tony opened the front door of Hope House and was killed. Needlessly, senselessly, violently taken from us. I've had to forgive people for things in my life, but that was just a different level of trying to figure out what does forgiveness look like. Of course, I was led very much by Miss Jenny, Tony's mom. She was next door when it happened but didn't know what had happened to her son out front. We had to go in there and tell her the news. Obviously, there was a lot of tears. But when she finally started talking, the first thing Miss Jenny asked about was the young man who had done it and his family. She immediately defaulted to grace. In the coming months, we tried to follow Miss Jenny's lead, not always successfully, but we figured if his mother could choose grace, we can as well. Probably the worst worst thing I've ever had to do and the highest honor I've ever had is when Miss Jenny uh, asked me to represent her and the church community at the sentencing of the man who killed her son. when he accepted his plea bargain, part of what happens is that the family gets to speak to you, whether you want to hear it or not. And a few of you were in that room that day. I don't think I'll ever be a part of anything that was as holy as those few minutes. Because I was able to speak directly to him. And we didn't let him off the hook. We spoke very honestly about what had happened, about how much it hurt us, about how it wasn't Tony's life wasn't his to take away, about the wound that he created that would never fully disappear. We, were talk, we talked to him honestly about the heartbreak that he had so unnecessarily caused for no good reason. We told him that we hoped the next 20 years that he was supposed to spend in prison provide him opportunity to come to grips with what he had done. and then we forgave him. Because we know Tony would. We know Miss Jenny did. And we know that's what we believe. Because if we didn't have grace then, what's the point of grace at all? We talk about forgiveness casually. And thankfully that's because a lot of times the things we have to forgive for are really not that big a deal. let's not talk about it too casually. Forgiveness is a big word with a lot of implications. Forgiveness is exhausting. It's hard work, and it's long work. And it's not magic. It doesn't make everything go back the way it was. Nothing brings Tony back. but It is what we are called to. Just like Joseph's grace for his brother's, didn't undo the trauma that they inflicted upon him. Forgiveness doesn't erase the pain or the struggle or the loss. It stands toe-to-toe with it. It faces it up, and it refuses to let it get the last word. It doesn't come easy, and it doesn't come without a cost. But either we believe in life after death or we don't. So may we be forgiveness people, but may we not take it too lightly. May we not talk too casually about something this important. May we kiss and weep and fight for resurrection in our worlds. Because we have no better news to share than this. Death does not get the final word. That's bright. God, we are thankful that you are a God of grace and forgiveness. That while we were yet undeserving, you gave even your own life for us. That even as you hung on a cross, you whispered forgiveness over those who put you there. That you gave us a different story, a better story. than the myth of redemptive violence that we have always played out in our world over and over again. God, may we be moved by this story of Joseph. May we not talk casually about something as serious as forgiveness. Give us the strength and the courage and the grace to do the hard work of resurrection in this world. God, we do love. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.